0: Again, I wanted to give you some ammunition and, again, I wanted to be somewhat comprehensive so you know a little bit about the religions. Hinduism and Buddhism, again, you guys, is the exact opposite in a sense of what we just covered because Hinduism and Buddhism, again, that is a belief where God is completely imminent. He's not transcendent at all. Now, in this first slide, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to give you some ammunition that you can use to show the irrationality of Hinduism and Buddhism because... In both Hinduism and Buddhism, it stems from they both stem from a worldview of pantheism, which means God is the world. So pan meaning all, theism is God, all is God, or God is in all things. It's also sometimes called monism, meaning all is one and one is all. Okay. So what is the problem with a pantheistic worldview? This is how I'd probably start um, if you have an opportunity to sit down with somebody to show them the irrationality of their worldview and their faith. Remember the general revelation that we learn in second, the second law of thermodynamics when we we're trying to witness to atheists? And remember that law says that the world is not eternal? How did it do that again? Remember the second law of thermodynamics says that all energy is going from a higher ordered state to a lesser ordered state in a closed system, right? Okay, so what that tells us then is the world cannot in fact be eternal because how could you have an infinite lifespan of a universe but a finite supply of usable energy, right? Because remember, you have to go into the infinite past to start your universe. Well, if you only have a finite supply of usable energy, you'd be up by now. So we wouldn't be talking here. We wouldn't have lights on. You'd be dead by now. So that proves the universe cannot be eternal. Well, what's the problem? Remember, in pantheism, God is the world. So therefore, their God is limited, right? So think about this hypothetical syllogism. Ah, this is great correlation. We're going all the way back to logic. Isn't that exciting? A hypothetical syllogism: If God is the world, then nothing is eternal. Now, remember, this is in, well, this is valid, right? Is this a valid deduction? I mean, is this premise valid? Because in other words, if the God, if God is the world, according to the second law of thermodynamics, then he would have to not be eternal, right? So, if the second law of thermodynamics is correct, then this premise one is correct. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to affirm the antecedent. Yes, God is the world, according to pantheism and what they believe. Therefore, the conclusion must follow, nothing is eternal. Now, let's give them another hypothetical syllogism using this information. If nothing is eternal, then nothing can exist. Well, sure enough, we learned up here, yes, nothing is eternal. Why? Because in pantheism, God is the world. Right. So therefore, nothing is eternal. Therefore, nothing can exist. So, friends, the problem with pantheism is it's irrational because to affirm it is to deny existence. Does that all make sense? Could could you maybe use that if you practice it a few times? So so, (laughs) I, I hope that's helpful. But the point being is if the universe is not eternal, which we've proven through the second law of thermodynamics, their God is the universe and the universe is God. So their God is not eternal. If there was ever a time that there was nothing, there would be nothing now. Because nothing can't do something. Do you see what I'm saying? So, again, their idea that everything is God is irrational. And I think we can use that. So, but, again, I'm sh- throwing this out at the outset to show you that Hinduism and Buddhism is irrational. It is an irrational belief system. In fact, you're going to get very frustrated because I got frustrated studying for it. A lot of this doesn't make any sense. They believe in one-arm clapping Okay, um, that's a contradiction, all right? And I don't like it, but... So sometimes you're going to be, what are you talking about? That's okay, that's how you feel when you're studying this, okay? So let's get into it. Hinduism is the mother of all, re, all false religions. And in my... I used a book called... One of the books that I used in studying for this was The Dictionary of Cult, Sex, Religions, and the Occult. It's a, quite a read, I must say. In page 116, the author says this, It has been said on many occasions and by numerous authors and thinkers that all of the religions of the world may be reduced to one, Hinduism. The chief enemy of this proposition is its largest competitor, Christianity. But nevertheless, philosophically and foundationally, the essence of Hinduism is that all reality is one. Such was the outlook of the Greek philosopher Parmenides, who laid the groundwork for Platonism. Such was the outlook of Hegel and Schelling. Now, why do I bring up Hegel? Where does Hegel play a a prominent role in what does he do well he remember is the engine that drives along the emerging church because hegel is the one that says the world is getting better it's evolving into oneness okay so if you guys read bob deway's book and i wish i had the title what's it called dick do you remember no that that was his old you're right that, but that was he's got a new and improved title that was going to be the title i think it's just called the emerging church and then the subtitle might be undefining so, anyway, it's coming out in April, and it'll be called The Emerging Church, written by Bob Dewey, and I forget the subtitle. Gosh, I have the thing, too. But at any rate, he talks about how Hegel is the engine that drives along the emerging church. Because, again, to Hegel's worldview, you have thesis, you have antithesis, right? And then you have synthesis, and you always cut the middle. And through that synthesis, you're going to get a better world, and you're eventually going to evolve into oneness, all right? So what is the emerging church actually advocating? A return to Hinduism. That's the point that it's leading us towards, okay? I just want to point that connection out. So again, this should be frightening to all those who are in the emerging church, in my opinion. So let's talk about the history of Hinduism. There are four major periods, and I want you to realize that there's a lot of change over time. There's not a common theme or doctrine that you'll see come through these four major periods. We can use that when we're witnessing as well, because in the Bible, we see a common theme. We have a Messiah that's talked about coming in Genesis 3.15. In Revelation 22, he has come and he has established the eternal state. We have one theme. The theme is about God doing for his people what we couldn't do for ourselves. right? So with Hinduism, it's the, actually the opposite. They have many different gods, and then in fact they go from polytheism to pantheism. I'll show you that. So let's start off in the first period. The first period is called the pre-Vedic era, Veda literally means knowledge, so this is the pre-knowledge era, characterized by animism. Okay, now remember what Paul said was it in uh, Romans one twenty-five? He says, "Because they did not love the truth, God gave them over to a lie, and they worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator was forever praised." Amen. Well, that's exactly what these people were doing in the beginning. They were given over to animism. They were sacrificing to uh, the gods that they created with their own hands and that, of course, is a violation of the Second Commandment. That's where Hinduism starts, and it ends up starting with animism, and as you'll see, it'll end with pantheism. The next period, from 1500 to 700 B.C., is a period where the Aryans come from the steppes of Russia and Central Asia, and they bring Vedism. Now, again, Veda means knowledge, and this knowledge that they bring is actually a fire cult that brought about cremation slash reincarnation. So the idea there was they had knowledge of fire and they could put a body on the fire and it somehow purged it, okay? I don't exactly know how that works, but according to their own view, it would purge the body of evil spirits. And therefore, they wanted this body, or not the body, but the person to come back. And so they started developing this idea of reincarnation. So that's where it first starts, okay? So Vedism brought this about. Now, this is the time period where polytheism is rampant, so we have many gods, and you have a caste system that started. So a caste system, remember, that is where you have karma, and if you're a bad person in this life, you'll be in a lower caste. Okay, so you might be an untouchable. That's the worst thing you can be. Nobody will talk to you. Nobody will touch you. Nobody will give you affection. Nobody will give you the time of day. Or you might be a Brahmin. A Brahmin is a priest. That's the highest class you can be. And if you're a Brahmin, then you're in clover because everybody wants to talk to you and you can, in fact, help them find salvation according to their definition. Okay, So that's where all of that started. Now, when we get to the the third period, from 700 to 200 B.C., it's called the Upanishad period. And this literally means, this is actually a a text, but it literally means sit, sit at the feet. So think of this as the sit at the feet era because what's going on is we have gurus with their disciples sitting at their feet. That's why it's called that. And so what happens is it's this, the this world superhuman deities are transformed into other world deities. So they go from animism to gods that are outside of this world, okay? Supernatural gods, gods that are not a part of this world, if that makes sense. And then this is where asceticism, reincarnation, and the guru-discipleship relationship come about during this period. Gurus are those who have reached moksha, now, what is this moksha? Well, that is liberation from samsara or wandering. This is their salvation. So, in fact, Buddha is one who was a guru who taught people to do this. Now, I'm going to be explaining what this is in a minute, but I want you to understand now we have gone from polytheism all of a sudden to this era now we're into pantheism where you want to become one with God because you are God. You See what I'm saying? And you want to just realize that. So you can see the dramatic shift in there. I don't know if you call it theology, their, their understanding, okay? Now, from 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., this is called the Brahma period. And the reason why it's called that is because the god Brahma rises to a place of hegemony over the lesser gods. Now, don't shoot the messenger here, but in contradiction, Lord Krishna, one of the ten incarnations of Vishnu and Siva, become equally important gods. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. How can Brahma, which is the, this creator mini-god, Vishnu and Siva, how can they all be important? I don't know. There's contradictions. There's one arms clapping all the time here. And so to try to make sense of it, you really can't. All right. But here's what I want you to see. The big picture is they have a false trinity. So think about it this way. You have Brahman. What is Brahman? Think about it as everything. You're Brahman, I'm Brahman, the table, everything. It's the entire universe and it's God. Everything's God and God is everything. So we're all Brahman. Everything that exists is Brahman. Okay, But... Under Brahman, then, which is everything, you have many gods. So you would have Vishnu. Vishnu is, he is like the protector or the sustainer god. Okay, then you have a destroyer god, the, the one who brings death. And so, interestingly enough, Hinduism has this false trinity, although it's nothing like our trinity. But see how Satan is perverting the true trinity. But yet, this trinity isn't personal, this trinity can't be known. You simply, to be part of it, you just exist. And when you die, you just meld into vapor, osmo. I don't know. You just become one with it, okay? That's your goal. That's moksha. So, again, Brahman is everything, and Vishnu and Siva are mini-gods that are part of Brahman. Does that all make sense? Okay. Very, very strange. Now, it says all gods are impersonal, imminent manifestations of Brahman. Okay, again, impersonal because a star... How can you have a relationship with a star Remember that's every bit as much God as you are okay so you can't have a relationship with a star it's very impersonal it's imminent in the sense that nothing is transcendent because everything's God okay does that make sense and they' are manifestations of Brahman which is everything so everything is God all right that's the big picture now let's talk about the Hindu text where do they get all these ideas there are four Vedas again Veda means knowledge and the first era was. Where it was written the Samhitas. This is from fifteen hundred to six hundred BC. And what these these writings here came first, and then you're going to see three appendixes onto this. Now I'm going to explain what the Samhitas, what was in it in a minute, because this is the heart of the Hindu religion. Okay? Now, let me show you the appendixes that were on top of this, that were added to it. From thousand to six hundred BC, there's another writing called the Bra- I think it's called the Brahmanas. Okay, but it has nothing to do with um, Brahman, all right and this has to do with detailed sacrificial formula so this is what told you how to be right with the gods because this is back when they still believed in gods so you had to be right and have atonement in front of all the mini gods okay because you're not god yet here all right so do you see how their theology is t- totally different here you see what i'm saying so their religious text it's completely different in the beginning than it is in the end now we come to the next section was where the Arianachus, which is the forest text and these forest texts, the reason why they're called that is because men start believing that the way to get in touch to, with God is you retreat out to the forest and you start to try to get in touch with the oneness. All right, And so you retreat to meditate. It's kind of the emerging... It's the Brian McLaren approach, you might say. It's you, you get away and you, re, you try to find yourself with the oneness of the universe. Okay, And then we have, finally, the Upanishad period which is the dialogues between the gurus and the students. And this, of course, was when we had Buddha was living this during this. Now, this is the picture that I want you to see. Think of polytheism as existing during the time of the Samhitas, and when you get to the Upanishad period, you have pantheism. Remember, all is God. So think of the contradiction. Up here, you have many gods, and by the time you get to here, you're God. Up here, you have to try to appease God. Here, you are God. So again... That we should use in witnessing, saying you don't even have a common theme. What was your theology right up here or is it right down here? Whereas the Christian theology is the same from Genesis to Revelation. The composition of the Samhita, now again, I'm up here, I'm talking about this one book. This is very important. It's the first one of their four and it's comprised of these different components. So at 1500 BC, the Rig Veda was uh, written. It's 1028 hymns. There are ten chapters for rituals and sacrifices. There are praises for many deities. Again, they're trying to appease the deities here. thousand BC, there's the Samaveda, which is very redundant. It's much like the Rig Veda. Then at 800 BC, there's the Yajurveda, which mixes hymns for sacrifice with explanations. And then finally, at 600 BC, there's the Vaveda. This contains verbal formula to control and manipulate the spirit world. So again, spells, incantations for health, protection, success, etc. So again, this is all part up here where you're trying to talk to the gods and control them, whereas down here in the modern day, they are God. Okay, does that all make sense? That's the progression of the religion. Okay, now here are the Hindu beliefs. Now I'm going to try to explain what their method of salvation and all their components. So these, think about it, this is the parts list of their belief system. Again, Brahman. There's three definitions to Brahman, and I just don't want you to get confused. Sometimes they use them interchangeably. So the first definition is, it's a cosmic sacred power making sacrifices effectual. That would have been used in the beginning of their, their, I hate to say theology, but their theology. Okay, They have polytheism. So when they had many gods, they needed to have sacrifices to appease them, and so Brahman was known as the sacred power that made them effectual. Well, you're going to see Brahman change now. Then in the Upanishads, which is their later writings, it becomes the ultimate reality behind all things, identical with Atman. Now here's where you want to start throwing things at me. What is Atman? Atman is your soul. So the goal to a Hindu and a Buddha is to have the realization that your Atman and Brahman are equal and to really believe it, to believe to such a degree where you become one with the universe and you're able to empty yourself and you become part of this oneness, um, if that makes sense. So your Brahman and your Atman have to be equal, and therefore you reach what's called Moksha. Okay. So number three, these, those endowed with sacred power who served as priests and conservers of Vedic truth. Okay, that's another term for Brahman. These are the high, these are the high caste among the Hindus, the Brahman, These are the priests. So this is also uh, this term describes the highest part of their caste system. Does that make sense? The lowest part of the caste system is the untouchable. So that's where this comes from. Okay? So again, the primary meaning of Brahman, though, is number two, where you have its ultimate reality. Okay, now, Atman, again, that's the soul of a person or the universe because you are God. What does Shirley MacLaine say on the beach in that one movie? I am God. I am God, she chants, right? But what many people in the modern-day New Age movement believe is they were gods like the Hindus teach and they're part of the oneness, but they forgot they were gods. Okay, Now remember, that's some sort of god that forgets he's a god, <laughs> right? That's kind of a pathetic god, but nonetheless, that's what they believe. So again, Atman is you. Now, what you're trying to do, again, is the problem in this world is you're in samsara, you're in wandering, and part of the wandering is reincarnation. So reincarnation is a subset of this samsara, so reincarnation is taught in the Upanishads, but not in the Rig Veda. So again, this is a later development. So again, you become let's say a really bad, nasty person, you might become a squirrel or a, a rat or something, okay? Now this plays out actually in life in India because friends think about it. If there's a rat that's actually spreading disease, they won't kill it. They won't exterminate it. Why? Well that might be grandma. And grandma is trying to work off her karma. And you don't kill grandma. Because otherwise, how is her Adman ever going to be equal to her Brahman, and she's never going to reach Moksha? You see what I'm saying? Okay, we got problems here, right? So don't kill grandma. So what happens if you don't kill grandma, which is the rat? Then you've got disease and so forth. So their whole society is held into grips by this thing. It's very sad. So again, Moksha is the liberation from from Samsara, wandering. This is accomplished, again, by realizing and really, really believing it and achieving knowledge that allows a person to understand that Brahman, or everything there is, is equal to you, or Atman, your soul, okay? And again, so ultimate reality equals your soul. That's what the same thing is saying here, all right? Now, karma. Where does karma fit in? Well, karma is good or bad actions causing one to be reincarnated in different levels of creatures. Again, you must be purged for moksha to occur. So in order for this moksha, which is their salvation, the best they hope for is that they cease to exist and they become one with the universe. Isn't that sad? Whereas our great hope is we'll be raised from the dead, We'll have a body that's never destroyed again. We'll have a conscious, perfect existence with the Creator we get to learn about for the rest of our eternal lives and share in His glory. Friends, that's, isn't it cool how the truth is so much better than the lie? okay? But nonetheless, friends, this is sad. This is what they believe. And so, um, continuing on here, salvation for them. This comes from Ron Carlson. Some of you may know that name uh, from Jan Markell. She had him at her last Understanding the Times conference. He writes in his book, Fast Facts and False Teaching, the ultimate goal of Hinduism and Buddhism is to liberate ourselves from this physical personal existence and become one with the impersonal all. Okay, that is salvation to them. Suffering. People suffer because they have not liberated themselves from their personal world. This physical world is just an illusion called Maya. Okay, so that's, everything's an illusion to them. So again, let me remind you sin is an illusion. They don't believe that sin is real. All right? So I, you could go up maybe take their wallet. I don't know. They'd just say, well, it's an illusion. But they would still, I would imagine, hold you accountable to that. See, so they can't even live these things out. You see what I'm saying? It, it doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, this enlightenment is called, again, by Buddhists, it's called nirvana. So this is the same thing as moksha. Uh, Hinduism, it's called moksha, samadhi, or kaivalya, okay? And then the Zens, they call it satari, all right? And in the Western world, you'll see it called cosmic consciousness, or becoming one with oneself. That is in the New Age movement. Does that all make sense? So if you talk to people and they're talking about the cosmic consciousness, realize they're talking about Hinduism. All right. I don't know if that helps you, but if you run into anybody, that's what they're talking about. Okay. Now again, sin, there is no such thing. It too is an illusion, and I think we can actually use that when we're witnessing to them. Again... Um, We have their means of enlightenment. How do they actually go about? Now, I've described what they want to do. They want to reach moksha. How do they do it? What is the mechanism or the mechanisms by which they can do it? Well, there's three paths. There's the path of knowledge. And this path of knowledge makes one realize, again, that Brahman is Atman. And you really, apparently, have to believe it. Because as soon as you believe it, you enter into that state where you're one with the universe. And again, the universe is God, so you become God. Um, two, you have to have a path of good works. you have to work off your karma okay, so if you don 't do that, you can have the other path straight, but you still have to go back and work out your karma. you see and by the way, karma is not based on sin they 're not sinning there 's no God to sin against it 's your destiny, so they believe in a form of determinism that 's determined by the Brahman or all that is, but again it 's not personal now again, one hand clapping okay i don 't know i don 't get it, but that 's what they believe, so don 't shoot the messenger. There's no personal God that they're sinning against. And then finally, there's the path of yoga. And this allows one to transcend the world of illusion. Now, let me talk a little bit about yoga because yoga is really prevalent in our culture today, especially in the emerging church. Okay, many people know that, I'm sure. Let me talk about the There's first of all, hatha yoga. These are the first five steps. There's eight steps total. The first five have to five, they're about preparing the body for transcendence into moksha, or nirvana, if you're a Buddhist, and they're comprised of isometrics and breathing exercises. So, this is all about getting your body ready to become one with the universe and God and so forth. Now, the next three steps is Raja Yoga. The last three steps, where a person silences the mind by repeating mantras. Does that sound like anything? Contemplative prayer. We've all heard people do that, right? Achieves oneness with God, yet still with a sense of personal existence. Okay, so in other words, you haven't really gotten it yet. And then, if you really get it, I should have put a, a period here, if you really get it, then you enter into this idea of diffusion into the impersonal universe, and therefore you become God. Okay? So, here, think about this, you guys. I'm a seminary student. At my orientation lecture, I have Carla Dahl at Bethel Seminary, someone actually who Bob tried to keep from getting into the Bethel Seminary because he knew that she was a heretic. But she leads us into repeating this mantra, Why does she want us to repeat a mantra over and over and over? Well, because it silences the mind. And remember, the emerging church doesn't believe that you can ever know God through His Word because they're postmodern. So the only way to get in touch with God is through this mystical process. Well, what they're actually doing is aligning people up with Hinduism and becoming one with this God of, you know, Brahman, you know, or Brahma, yeah, Brahman. So we're all going to become God. That's the motivation behind the emerging church, and I think that should frighten people. So again. If you know people that are involved with yoga, share this with them. Yoga is not, it's, it's, it's a practice and it's something that is not ordained in the scriptures. It's something that is from the pit of hell because, in fact, friends, what it is, it's a disassociation from the means by which we can know God, namely through the general revelation and through his word, the special revelation, and it is a relying upon um, divination to come and know this one God that, is false, okay, so therefore um, yoga is not something that 's neutral, it is always in fact something that has a unordained means, and it 's a, a, a really a practice of divination now, this is a dis- description of this be- this moksha this becoming one with the universe. it talks about this osmosis is often described in Eastern philosophy as a drop of water merging into the ocean. That is a description of this nirvana or this moksha. And I'm just trying to give you descriptions because it sounds so absurd, but that's what it is. Now, real quickly, I just wanted to cover Buddha real quickly. Buddha, his name literally means enlightenment. And I, Remember, Buddha is a Hindu and he reacts against Hinduism. He doesn't like the fact that Hindus have many gods. He's an, actually an atheist and he reacts against the caste system. Those two things, remember, he's an atheist and he reacts against the caste system. But I want you to see just a little bit about them so you're kind of familiar. Theravada Buddhists, Theravada means small engine. These type of Buddhists believe that only monks can reach nirvana. Remember, nirvana and moksha are the same. That's the the oneness with the universe. Okay, And these areas of the world have Theravada Buddhists. Here's Mahayana Buddhists. Mahayana means big engine and they believe that nirvana is open to all. All right, And finally, how do they believe um, that they can attain salvation? Well, first of all, you have to believe in these four noble truths, that life is suffering, suffering is caused by desire, cessation of desire eliminates suffering, and the stopping of desire comes by following the middle way between the extremes of sensuousness and aestheticism. So you've got sensuousness over here, aestheticism over here. You've got to cut down the middle and go the middle way. And here's the middle or eightfold path. You have to have right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, and right ecstasy. And friends, the problem with that is, again, it's the antithesis of the gospel who said none of us did what was right. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Well, what are they saying? No, you have to do everything right. Well, we can't. We can't do anything right. And even if you did everything right according to the Buddhist doctrine, what do you get at the end of the day? you absolve into nothingness. Okay, well, wow. (laughs) Sign me up for that plan, right? It's not real promising, all right? So, but this is what they believe and these are the things that they believe sincerely. Sincerely. So let me let me talk about quick ways that we can witness to them. And again, I don't. I have to be honest with you. I put my cards on the table. I don't have a lot of experience witnessing with these people. So I hope we have a little bit of time for discussion, and maybe I can get some more from you guys. But here's just looking at it through an academic level. First of all, I think we should show the the irrationality of pantheism. Remember back in slide 12, I explained that the second law of thermodynamics proves that the universe cannot be eternal. If God is the universe, then God is an eternal. If you so, in other words, now you have a you have a system where you have nothing existing because God isn't eternal, nothing's eternal. Well, if there's ever a time that there was nothing, you'd have nothing now. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Ex nihilo nihilo fit. Okay? Out of nothing, nothing comes. Okay. So we have to show them the irrationality of that. They cannot be rational and hold to pantheism. Now again, that doesn't seem to phase a lot of them. One hand clapping, right? That's what they believe. But again, we have to show them that they should be concerned with that. Um, we have to show them the irrationality of everything being an illusion. Okay, again, how do we do that? Well, remember Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Remember, if we doubt that everything exists, they think everything's an illusion. Sin, you and me, all we have to do is realize we're an illusion and we'll end up becoming one with the universe, right? Well, the problem is if we doubt that everything exists, we are doing something. What are we doing? We're thinking, right? In other words, if I'm doubting that everything exists, I'm still doing something and nothing cannot do something. Therefore, we must exist to even doubt. Therefore, Hinduism is irrational. We've proven something exists and therefore their system falls flat on its face again. So here's a couple logical things that we can bring up. Um, and again, I don't know if it'll do any good because they have to be rational to accept these things. Another thing is, I think we should demonstrate that evil does exist. Even Buddhists and Hindus have a sense of right and wrong. According to Romans 2.15, people have conscience. And the conscience, remember friends, we can use that to say, hey, you believe in right and wrong. And you believe it that if somebody were to do something wrong to your sister or your mother or your father or whoever, that is evil and it's wicked, right? And so we can tell them that, no, this evil is a real thing. It actually exists. We can use that. But remember, the conscience is not perfect. According to Titus 115, the conscience and the mind of those who are um, unregenerate is defiled. So remember, the conscience is never a pure instrument, but it's something we can at least use with them to demonstrate that agreed-to law presupposes a personal lawgiver. So again, this is the idea of the sense of right and wrong in Romans 2.15. The Bible says all have done wicked, according to Romans 3.23. That includes them. In other words, not only do we give them the law and show them that they have fallen short of the glory of God, but we proclaim it to them. We tell them, no, the word of God is true, and despite what you feel and what you like, you're a lawbreaker and you're guilty before the Holy One of Israel. All right. Now, with that... That comes our next section. We prove the divinity of the Bible through prophecy. These are people I think we're going to have to teach the Bible to. These are people you're going to have to sit down with and say, let me tell you about the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, and let me show you that I have proof that the Bible is in fact written by a God who knows the future. And then you're going to pull out your prophecies out of Daniel 8, Daniel 9, your Isaiah 44. About so You're going to pull out all those things, and you're going to prove that there's a God who wrote the Bible. And what does that do? Well, if there's a God who wrote the Bible, then they better submit to Romans 3.23 because this is written by the same God. And what does that God say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, so that's, I think, how we should proceed. And then finally, um, again, predictive prophecy proves to all people that God exists and wrote the Bible. But finally, we preach a personal God who sent his son. Remember, they believe that we're all God, but we have to get rid of that view. Let me just say this. Think about everything above the line is convicting them of them of sin and everything below the line is preaching the gospel and finally has to be done with prayer and love. All right. Now, I don't know if that's helpful, but this is, again, from an academic standpoint. But with that, let me silence my mind and take a few questions or comments. When you're talking to a moderate Muslim, I have found it helpful to kind of to trap them. And the way I
1: do it is I just talk about the justice system and talking about a judge that doesn't punish lawbreakers what you know what do you think of that and they'll say well that's you, know, you get them to admit that that's not a that's not an honest judge that's a corrupt judge and you can even make it personal by saying you know what if this you know what if i was standing before this judge and i had admitted murdering your family you know raping and doing all these terrible things but the judge just said ah you're a good guy you know you're you've done a lot of good in your life you know uh, you can just go I mean you can make it personal, you know, would that be just? Mm. Well, obviously, more than likely they would say no. Mm. And then you start going in to a spiritual discussion and then I start walking them through the law because, you know, they, you know, they're they're it's it's self-righteous, it's it's works. And then you get them to admit that they're liars and they've stolen and they've blasphemed God's name and, you know, they've done all these things against the commandments. And then you you know, say what what should Allah do with you? Well that's up to Allah. But wouldn't you admit that if he lets you into heaven then he's an unjust judge? Mm. And you go back to didn't you say that back, you know, in the you know the, the legal system here on earth, that's that would be an unjust judge.
2: Mm.
1: So you just kind of, you know, parallel the two situations and it gets them to think. Oh. You know, at least that, wow, it's like, yeah, if he does let anybody in, he's not punish, punish He's, You know, you're kind of bribing the judge at that point. You're saying, but my works, my works,
2: oh.
1: you know, and it doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, and they're in a dilemma then because their God, if he allows them in, he is less just than an, a wicked earthly judge. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah,
3: Chris. I was just going to point out and kind of to add to the uh, witnessing to Muslims. um, obviously preach preach law and gospel to them but i yeah. in my experience you run into a lot of common stereotypes when you're witnessing okay or uh, misconceptions they have and I'll, I guess one of them is that they'll say there's four they think there's four bibles okay like stuff they're commonly taught growing up in muslim circles especially more if they were raised in the middle eastern okay they'll say there's four bibles and what they're actually speaking of is the four different gospels
0: oh interesting and so they're all confused with that.
3: If they're being sincere, you can usually quickly explain to them okay. how the four gospels they work together to show the accuracy and the truth yeah. of scripture, rather than being four different gospels that say four different things. Mm, and that's good. Some of the stuff you brought up about the misconceptions about the Trinity and Mary being in the Trinity, and sure, um, they say they believe in the Bible or believe in scripture the Old Testament and stuff, but they say it's been corrupt, too.
0: Yeah. In fact, we ran into that when we were witnessing to a Muslim... Yeah. Yeah, that's good.
3: And then, too, if you're actually in the Middle East or like somebody that's raised in a more Middle Eastern environment, they think that all Americans are Christians. Okay. Everything coming out of Hollywood is Christian. Oh, yeah. Therefore...
0: Yeah. That's That's not good, right? Yeah. Wow. That's, That's good stuff. Yeah,
2: Thanks, you guys. I just wanted to ask you, uh, you said that Hinduism was the the first or the, the basic mother of all false religions?
0: Yeah, that was the dictionary of the cult guy. I, I, in a sense, all religions can be found in Hinduism, this longing to be God, and it almost kind of goes back to the garden, this idea of buying into the lie. You yourself will be like God, knowing good from evil, that kind of idea. Uh, well,
2: couldn't we go back uh, further than Hinduism to ancient Babylonianism? Yeah, and the uh, you know that attempt to crash heaven, yeah, with the uh, Tower of Babylon. through uh, human. Race. But one of the one of the rationales I, I thought you we might be able to use with uh, Hindus. Um, you know, I, I'm married to uh, a woman that descended from him, Hindus, and it's. It's sure. tough to reason with them.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. <laughs> yeah. but, but you can stay uh, at my place, Mike, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> but,
2: yeah. uh, but I, I think w- one thing we could do is show that knowledge is the ability to see distinction. Mm. And they seem to be suppressing knowledge. Pressing the knowledge of God, Romans 1. And what they're trying to do is, uh, you know, blind themselves to distinctions and merge into this oneness, this ocean of, you know, sameness. And and, uh, so you could show that they're, uh, even in a worldly sense, um, uh, going against the grain of, uh, you know technological advancement yes. and scientific discovery Very because so. we 're moving in a you know in a direction of being able to see distinction yeah. and pick up patterns and see things uh, in our world uh, that we couldn 't see or recognize before. they seem to be on the other path yeah. they 're trying to blend everything together and take away distinctions yeah. so I don't know. I, I just, That's well said.
0: In fact, in India, until the British really come on the scene, it is very backwards. In fact, if everything's an illusion, scientific inquiry is very difficult. Um, they don't believe in the law of non-contradiction. You can't distinguish between any two categories, which is the basis of scientific discovery. So you're right. Their very well, religion has kept them held back from
2: And And you science. could you could use it against them. You know, if everything is an illusion,
0: yeah. you've got nothing to say to me. Yeah. That's right. I know it's self refuting you know, isn't it?
2: How can you yeah. open your mouth
0: and say anything? <laughs> right. Exactly. It's absurd. I know. Yeah. It's very. It was very um, difficult to even read it because it, it just. It kind of. It's frustrating as a Westerner to even contemplate some of their thoughts, isn't it? Is cremation a Hindu practice? I think it is. I think it is. Do you know that for sure? Do they still do it? I know they did in the beginning, but okay. So they still do it. Well, that's. In fact, what about the funeral pyres? I know sometimes.
2: Then, then you know, the
1: oldest member of the family will set the fire, and they all okay sit around and you know, they watch
0: it and wait till it. so they're still doing that, okay, wow, thanks a lot, yeah, so there you go, they're still doing it, I know, yeah, oh, yeah, in fact, you know you guys, somebody asked me once about cremation, and again, remember at the resurrection, God is going to have no problem putting any of us back together again, right, but I realize that burial really may be a better picture of a Christian witness. Than is cremation because cremation has um, connotations of Hinduism in it, so that may be something that we may bring up with our. Uh, if you have a relative that's wondering cremation or burial, something to think about at least. What is the the way we bury people? Not that it matters again ultimately in the resurrection, and not that this is law or anything like that. But how? What kind of witness is it to the world? It's something to at least think about. Anybody, now, oh, by the way, next week what I want to try to cover. And I'm sorry, I threw a lot. That's a lot of material. What I'd like to try to do next week is Catholicism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Mormonism. Now, that's a lot too. And so I, I don't know, I might just focus on one and just, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm going to try to get through the material, but that, those are the three. I thought we could get through six major false religions and cults, okay? But it's going to be a little bit more fun because next week then there's going to be more discussion about the Bible. So. Okay, so that's going to be Sunday, Sunday, April
3: 5th. Right? Yes,
0: at 7 okay, So that's o'clock. a week from this Sunday,
3: at 7 yeah. p.m.
0: And that will be our last night together, yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. Yep, thanks. <laughs>